Okay, let's go ahead and get started. We're going to dive right in. So the prophet Micah was a contemporary of the prophet Isaiah, who we talked a little bit about last week. So the two men most likely knew each other and interacted since they were both prophesying from Jerusalem. Well, like Isaiah, Micah prophesied before and after the northern kingdom went into its Assyrian exile. And like Isaiah, his prophecies are full of judgment and warning for both the northern and southern kingdoms, but they are also punctuated with beautiful prophecies of God's restoring the blessings of Eden. Micah's name actually means, who is like the Lord? And that's the final question of his book. So in chapter 7, verse 18, Micah asks, who is a God like you? So this question really bookends his message. And in between these bookends, two pictures of God emerge. We see God as his people's judge, and we see God as the shepherd of his people. So Micah depicts God as a judge. He depicts him as coming down from heaven onto the mountains of the earth so that we are forced to recall another time when God came down from heaven onto Mount Sinai, when he first came down to give Israel the covenant. But here in Micah's oracles, this time is God is coming down from heaven to judge Israel for their many sins in breaking that covenant he had given them. Now, we already know that idolatry is the bane of Israel. They just won't be faithful to God. They prostituted themselves with any and every idol of the nations around them. But Micah paints an additional picture of these people's sins. Not only are they idolaters, they are merciless and violent, and their land is full of social injustice. Chapter 2 describes the people as those who lie awake at night, devising all kinds of evil schemes. And then the, more, the moment the sun goes up the next day, they get up and they do those things they devised on their beds. They seize houses and lands, and they seize inheritances. They do this all unjustly, and they leave the poor with nothing. Chapter 3 shows the corruption of Israel and Judah's leaders. So we see that the problem is systemic. It's not just with the people. Their leaders are corrupt. He says they detest justice and make crooked all that is straight. Leaders give judgment for a bribe. The priests teach for a price. And prophets practice divination for money. So the leaders are corrupt and self-seeking. Priests and prophets speak whatever it is that will make them popular with the people and pad their pockets with cash. So how bad have things gotten in Israel? Chapter 7 says it this way. The godly have perished from the earth. All lie in wait for blood, and each hunts the other with a net. This is society-wide evil. Even the family unit is in ruins. That most basic building block of human society is dysfunctional. Micah says in chapter 7, verses 5 and 6, Guard the doors of your mouth from her who lies in your arms. For the son treats the father with contempt, and the daughter rises up against her mother, and a man's enemies are those of his own household. Society is morally bankrupt. That is the state of the union in Micah's prophecies. And as God's mouthpiece, Micah warns Judah that God is about to come down from heaven to judge them 
for their crimes. But like the people wouldn't listen to Isaiah, they won't listen to Micah, and their stubbornness seals their fate. God will come to judge his people. And in the short term, for Israel, that means Assyria, and for Judah, that means Babylon. But judgment won't be the final word. Because God is faithful, he will also come as a shepherd to lovingly gather the remnant of his people back into his flock. He will reestablish them in the land under his care. Micah 7, 19 and 20 says it this way. God will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. He will cast our sins into the sea and will show faithfulness to Jacob and steadfast love to Abraham as he has sworn to our fathers from days of old. So in the short term, God will come in judgment to deal with his people's sins, but then he'll come as a shepherd to restore them. And the first prophecy you studied for today draws these two images of judge and shepherd together. So we're going to look at Micah 5, 1 through 5. It's on page 59 of your workbooks. And we'll divide it up into four parts. So there's a problem there's a solution, and then we see there's a plan and an outcome. So let's talk about the problem first. This is in verse 1. It's always the same problem with Israel. They have enemies. So these in Micah, these are enemies that God has allowed to afflict his people because of their sin. But verse 1 says, Now muster your troops, O daughter of troops. Siege is laid against us. With a rod they strike the judge of Israel on the cheek. So this siege is likely referring to Assyria, who is named in verse 5. So we've already talked about Assyria was the empire that destroyed the northern kingdom in 722 BC, but afterward they also harassed Judah. So in 701 BC, so during the time Isaiah and Micah are prophesying, Assyria lays siege to Jerusalem. And Sennacherib, the commander of the Assyrian forces, taunts Judah, and he taunts God. Listen to what he says. Do not listen to Hezekiah, your king, O people of Jerusalem. The Lord will not deliver you. Have any of the gods of the nations delivered their people out of the hands of the king of Assyria? Your God cannot protect you against us. But surrender, and you will have peace. Now, Hezekiah is one of those good kings of the southern kingdom that we talked about last week. And at this threat on his city, he tears his clothes, he covers himself in sackcloth, he seeks Isaiah's counsel, and he goes into the house of the Lord and he prays. This is what he says, O Lord, our God, save us from his hand, that all the kingdoms of the earth may know that you alone are the Lord. And the Lord answered Hezekiah through Isaiah. He says, He shall not come into this city, but by the way that he came, he shall return. For I will defend this city to save it for my own sake and for the sake of my servant David. And then he sends the angel of the Lord that night to strike down 185,000 of the Assyrian soldiers. And the next morning when the sun comes up, All is quiet outside the Jerusalem city walls, just a field of dead bodies. 
Well, Sennacherib, for his part, flees back to Nineveh, where he is killed by his own sons who strike him down in the temple of his lesser god. So, summary of the problem. Assyria was Israel's enemy and the current threat to Judah. But Assyria just becomes the symbol for a larger problem. They're a symbol for all of, all of Israel's enemies. So the prophecy speaks of a larger context than just the present threat of Assyria. It is a picture of enemies that continually attack the city of God from every side. But we find in verse 2 the solution to this problem. So just six miles away from the siege of Jerusalem, in the small town of Bethlehem, from the little clan of Ephrathah, a ruler will arise. So Ephrathah was a small clan of families within Bethlehem. It is actually the clan name for Ruth and Boaz, who were, of course, the great-grandparents of King David. So this, this family is from a small clan in a small town doing small work. You'll recall that David was a shepherd. Yet from these humble roots shall come forth one who is to be ruler in Israel, a ruler who far from forsaking his humble roots will rule with the heart of a lowly shepherd. This shepherd-like ruler is the solution to Israel's enemy problem. Though his roots are humble, his coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. So old is a word used to describe both ancient historical times, but also eternity past. So we, there's another nod here to the eternal existence of this king. And then ancient days is a word that is just simply used to describe ancient times. So with this description, Israel would have linked this shepherd-like ruler to the promised king of glory, the one whose birth has been anticipated all the way back to the garden. And this prophecy teaches us that this small clan of Ephrathah and this small village of Bethlehem are not as insignificant as they might appear on the surface because they give rise not only to David, Israel's first great king, but also to David's heir, Israel's final and greatest king. Bethlehem was the birthplace of Israel's first great king, and now it will also be the birthplace of their last king. This prophecy would have reminded Israel of the Davidic blessing, so they would know that God had not forgotten his promise from ancient times, but he was still very determined to keep it. So, while Judah is in the midst of pressure from enemies, God tells them that just six miles away, behind the enemy's back, outside of their surveillance, he is working, and he will raise up a ruler to destroy all their enemies. Enemies who can't see or predict God's plans. This is happening behind their backs. You know, Babylon had no idea that even as they plotted Judah's demise, God was arranging history, first for their success over Judah, because God was judging his people, but second, for their defeat, because God, even after giving Babylon success, would then turn in judgment on them for their cruel and merciless treatment of, it, of his people. Micah says in 4, chapter 4, 11, and 12, Now many nations, enemies, are assembled against you, Judah, 
saying, let her be defiled and let our eyes gaze upon Zion. With these words, you can just imagine the enemies kind of chomping at the bit. They are eager and ready to just destroy and plunder Jerusalem. Violence is in their hearts and they feel certain of their success. But God says, they do not know the thoughts of the Lord. They do not understand his plan that he has gathered them as sheaves to the threshing floor. They think they're coming to pray on Jerusalem. They think they are laying siege to the city in their strength, but they are only allowed strength for a time. They are doing God's bidding. They are his hand of judgment on Judah, but even so, in their cruel treatment of Judah, they seal their own judgment. Okay, so the problem, once again, is enemies. The solution is a shepherd ruler. But how is this going to work? What is the plan? We see that in verses 3 and 4. So verse 3, we've already hinted at this. It says that God will give them up. He will allow Judah to suffer defeat, not here in the short term under Hezekiah, but in the long term under Babylon. God will, deli will deliver Israel and Judah into the hands of their enemies in order to judge them for their sins. They will languish in exile until this ruler is born in Bethlehem. And then, this is also in verse 3, the rest of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel. And this just speaks of the family of Israel the household of God, that we have seen God begin to assemble through Abraham and David. This ruler will regather and restore them like, as it says in verse 4, a shepherd cares for his flock. He will be a good shepherd who does his work with the strength and majesty of the Lord his God. And the outcome, we see that in verses 4 and 5. First, safety they're going to dwell in, they're going to dwell secure in verse 4 and peace because this ruler himself shall be their peace in verse 5 and did you notice the nod to Abraham's blessing in verse 4 this ruler is going to be great so like god had promised to make abraham's name great this ruler will share abraham's fame and exceed it and he will spread Abraham's blessing. There it is in verse 4. He'll spread it to the ends of the earth. So this ruler with humble roots will be the one to bring the Eden blessing to his own people and then to every corner of the earth. Now, we still don't know this ruler's name, and we don't know when he's coming. But now we do know where he'll be born. So Israel's eyes had been trained on David's family and on Jerusalem, which was the seat of David's power. But this prophecy would teach them to look beyond Jerusalem and shift their eyes to the fields of Bethlehem while they wait for their king of glory to be born. But in the meantime, while they wait, God will judge them by sending enemies. They will even be scattered into exile but the faithful ones will know, they will recall that God is faithful and he will keep his promises. He will raise up a ruler from their midst, one who shares their humble beginnings. A nation of slaves and shepherds will be led by an oppressed shepherd. Israel had been afflicted not just by external enemies, 
but by their, their own rulers in their midst. But now, finally, a good ruler of the people will be born among them to restore them and give them the peace and the rest that they crave. Well, we know the history. As history unfolded, Assyria's siege of Jerusalem failed, and then the uneven history of the good and bad kings of Judah continued. And ultimately, as a whole, Judah does not repent of their unfaithfulness to the Lord. They do not repent of their idolatry or social injustices. So God sends the wicked Babylon to destroy their city and temple and he expels Judah from the promised land. But he also promised that their exile wouldn't last forever, just 70 years. So during their exile, another prophet, Jeremiah, he's still in Jerusalem during the exile, he writes to the Judean exiles in Babylon telling them, you are going to be there for a while. So settle down plant gardens, get married, have families, and pray for the peace of the city. And many of the exiles do this. Some of these exiles will remain in that foreign land beyond the 70-year period allotted for their exile, people like Mordecai and Esther. Well, 70 years is a long time. Most of the adults who were taken to Babylon would die there, and their children would be the ones to go back to the promised land. But even in exile, so that his people did not despair, God kept speaking to them through the prophets. And here we meet a number of prophets. Daniel is another Joseph figure. So he's a dream interpreter, and he rises to power like Joseph did. Daniel rises to power in the Babylonian Empire. And God sends him powerful dreams and visions that quite literally blow his mind. Visions of things to come in the near future, visions of things in the slightly distant future, and visions of things in the really distant future, including one we talked about a couple weeks ago, the vision of a son of man ascending to heaven where God gives him a throne and an earth-wide kingdom. Well, God also speaks to Judah during this time through Ezekiel, who is in Babylon. He is one of the exiles from Judah. And Ezekiel tells Judah of God's promise to fix their sin problem by giving them a new heart. So just as David had prayed for God to create in him a clean heart, God tells the nation he is going to do a work of recreation in them, taking their barren hearts and writing his laws on them so that his people instinctively obey him, something they just have not been able to do. So God speaks to Israel or to Judah during their exile through prophets, but he also encourages them by continuing to work in history to bless his people. So 2 Kings 25 and Jeremiah 52 both record the same historical fact. That 37 years into Judah's 70-year exile, the king of Babylon releases David's heir, the king of Judah, Jehoiakim, from prison. And he invites him to sit at his table. He treats him with honor. He gives him an allowance to pay for all the needs of his household for the rest of his life. And he honors him above all the other conquered kings who were with him in Babylon. So the book of the kings and the oracles of the prophet Jeremiah close on a note of hope. God is still being faithful. 
He has judged his people, as he said he would do, for their sins, but he has not abandoned them. He is still speaking to them, and he is actively preserving the line of David. So his plan to send the king of glory is still very much on track. Well, that 70-year period ends, and God sends his people home just as he promised he would do. Listen to how the book of Ezra opens. It says, in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, so he comes in and he defeats Babylon, and he rules the land. So in his first year, that the word of the Lord by the prophet Jeremiah might be fulfilled, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus so that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom. And here is what he says. The Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth and has charged me to build him a house in Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whoever is among you, speaking to the exiles, whoever is among you of all his people, let him go up to Jerusalem and rebuild the house of the Lord, the God of Israel. And let each survivor in whatever place he sojourns be assisted by the men of his place with silver and gold and goods and beasts and freewill offerings for the house of God. Do you hear it? This is a new exodus. This time, the king does not harden his heart like Pharaoh did in Egypt, but he eagerly lets God's people go, and he sends them off with wealth so that they can rebuild the temple of God. Well, many of the scattered people of Judah return, and they begin to rebuild Jerusalem and eventually the temple. It is a long and difficult project. Their plans are derailed, of course, by many enemies and by their own unfaithfulness. But eventually, the temple is rebuilt, and the people of Judah are once more occupying the promised land. Is this the restoration of Eden? What do you think? Well, there are signs from the beginning that, no, this is not an Eden reboot. First, they have no king, just a governor in Judah, Zerubbabel, who is in David's line of descendants, but he does not sit on a throne in Jerusalem. Second, although Israel does have some really good leaders in in the likes of Ezra and Nehemiah during this time, Jerusalem has nothing of its former glory. So back in Babylon, Ezekiel had had a vision of the glory of God leaving the temple and never returning. And that vision has come true. God does not return with his people to inhabit his rebuilt temple. So even though the people have had a new exodus and they are once more in the promised land, we recognize that their spiritual exile is far from over. They have their land, but their God is not with them. They are in Jerusalem, but their hearts are still as barren as the ground. Nevertheless, God has been faithful. He has done exactly what he said he would do. He has brought Judah back to the promised land where we expect the same cycle of sin and judgment to resume. Is Israel doomed to keep replaying the failure of the garden forever? Well, let's look at the next prophecy. This one comes from the mouth and quill of Malachi. 
So Malachi is a post-exilic prophet, and all that means is he writes after the exile. So he is God's mouthpiece to Judah after they return to the promised land. And he is not alone. There were other post-exilic prophets like him. So Joel, Obadiah, Haggai, Zechariah, they all write to the people of God after they return from Babylon. Well, Malachi's name means messenger of God. So as we often, as we've seen several times throughout the study, he is named for his function and role. And with a play on his name, he speaks against those who are supposed to be God's messengers. So he speaks against the corrupt priest and the false prophets. And he prophesies of a new messenger who will come before the day of the Lord to prepare the hearts of God's people to receive him. Well, the book of Malachi is a series of six disputes that God has with his people and the people have with God. So you get this back and forth argument between the two parties. And in these disputes, we get a picture of Judah's mindset after they have been punished in their exile. And we see that many of them are disillusioned. So before they went into exile, the false prophets had told them, don't worry, God will never come and destroy the city or his temple. Carry on with your idolatry. And they believed those false prophets. But it was the words of God's true prophets that had come to pass. And so now the people are suspicious of God. Their lives are hard. They aren't experiencing the blessings promised to them through Abraham. And so God speaks and he reasons with them in these six disputes. So let's, we're just going to quickly tick through those six disputes. In the first one, God declares his steadfast love for Judah. But the people argue, how have you loved us? And he proves it to them. He retells the story of how he chose them. Out of all the nations of the world, he chose them. In the second dispute, God accuses the priest of despising his covenant, but they won't accept the blame. They say, how have we despised your covenant? Well, for one, God says, you're offering blemished animals. You bring cheap sacrifices to my house. Your heart is not in this. Well, in the third dispute, the people accuse God of not accepting their offerings, and God says, how can I? Not only are you bringing cheap offerings, you have been faithless to me, and you have been faithless to your own marriage vows. And in this section, God declares his hatred of divorce and his heart for covenant love. Well, then Judah makes another accusation. He, they say, where is the God of justice? They look around, they see the prosperity of the wicked, and they accuse God of injustice. Well, God answers them with a prophecy about a new messenger. This is in chapter 3, verse 1. He says, Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. With those words, God is warning Judah to be ready. Because when they see this messenger come, the Lord himself is very near. And when he comes, he will draw near to the faithful to bless them, but he will also draw near to the wicked to punish them. 
And then he gives Judah a catalog of the wickedness that fills their lands and the reasons he will have to judge them. He says in chapter 3, verse 5, I will be a swift witness against the sorcerers, against the adulterers, against those who swear falsely, against those who oppress the hired worker, and those who oppress the widow and the fatherless, and those who thrust aside the immigrant, and against those, generally, who do not fear me, says the Lord of hosts. And he uses his battle name here, the Lord of hosts. This is the Lord of heaven's armies. He will come down against his own people if they don't repent. So we see that far from being unjust, God shows he is absolutely just. He won't distinguish between the wicked among his own people and the wicked among the enemy nations. So Judah, if they hadn't already learned by now in the exile, would have to recognize here that all the wicked, whether or not they descend from Abraham, will share the snake's curse. God's blessings are for those who hear his words and obey them. Well, in the fifth dispute, God accuses Judah of robbing him. And once more they ask, how have we robbed you? Well, they no longer pay the required tithe for the upkeep of the temple and the priesthood. And then finally, in the sixth dispute, God calls Judah to turn back. But the people say, how? It's pointless to serve God. And they ask in 3.14, What is the profit of keeping your charge when arrogant people are blessed and evildoers prosper and escape judgment? So we can see the hardness of Judah's hearts in these disputes. All they can see and think about is God's heavy hand of judgment on them. They think he has been unfair. They want him to come and judge the enemies who are also wicked, but it's instead, God has judged them. And even more humiliating is that God has used those wicked enemies to do it. So they aren't sure they want to be God's people anymore. Well, God answers this final dispute in two ways. As you would expect, first, he has a picture of hope. And second, he has a warning of more judgment. So the picture of hope comes in Micah 3, 16 through 18. There is a group of Judeans who do fear the Lord, and they do want to keep his words. And these few, these happy few, this band of brothers come together, and we're told in chapter 3, 16, that the Lord paid attention, and he heard them. And then a book of remembrance was written before God, of those who feared the Lord and esteemed his name. And God promises to bless these people. On the day of the Lord, God will bless these and all his faithful people with all the blessings of Eden. But for the rest, judgment. And then Israel will know that there is great profit in serving God. But second, he closes with a final warning of judgment. He gives one last prophecy about that coming messenger who will be a herald of restoration and judgment. So Malachi 4, 5, and 6 on page 59, we'll look at verse 5 first. It says, Behold, I will send you 
Elijah the prophet, before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. So, before the day of the Lord, and this is the day of judgment for the wicked, and it's the day of vindication for the righteous. This is also called the day of his power. Remember that expression, or the day of his wrath from Psalm 110? Before that day comes, God will send Elijah the prophet. Do you you think that is what they were expecting to hear? So another surprise in God's plan. They probably were scratching their heads at this prophecy. What do you mean you'll send Elijah the prophet? So let's mine this prophecy a little bit by asking three questions. Why Elijah? And what will Elijah do when he comes? And what happens if the people won't listen to him? So first, why Elijah? We talked just a little bit about him last week, but Elijah was a mighty prophet in the northern kingdom, and he did his work mostly under the wicked king Ahab. And he famously did not die, but he was taken by God into the heavens in a chariot of fire. So, and now just to, for the sake of history, we'll just kind of catalog a few of the more interesting deeds that Elijah did during his days of prophesying. So first, he announced a severe drought in Israel because of her wickedness. So he prays and he asks God to shut up the heavens and God does exactly that and it does not rain for three and a half years. Well, during this time of drought and subsequent famine, God provides for Elijah through a poor widow in Zarephath. And God then uses Elijah to provide for that widow and her son. So Elijah, with the power of God, ensures that her jug of oil and her canister of flour never run out during the three-and-a-half-year drought so that this widow and her son prosper during the time of famine. Later, Elijah will raise that widow's son from the dead. Elijah also has a dramatic showdown with all the prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel. And here again, he prays and he asks God to work. And God powerfully demonstrates his superiority above all other gods. Another time, Elijah will call down fire from heaven to consume a regiment of 50 soldiers who were sent by King Ahaziah to capture him. Elijah at another time divides the waters of the Jordan River, just like Joshua had done. Well, all these mighty deeds Elijah performed, but mostly he lived to preach judgment on Israel, begging her to repent and turn back to God, which, of course, they did not do. And I think that sending another Elijah-like prophet is God's way of reminding Israel that Elijah didn't finish his work. He was taken to heaven before he completed his task, and now in some way he'll be back. And this time, his message of repentance and judgment will begin to have an effect. So what will he do when he comes? This is in verse 6. He will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and hearts of children to their fathers. And that word turn is how we describe repentance. When we repent, we turn away from our sin and we turn toward God. It's like saying we've changed our minds And now we agree with God about our sins. So this Elijah-like prophet will cause people's hearts to turn. And notice the mention of heart. We've seen this word crop up. And we know that humanity's biggest need is to have a new heart. 
and before the king of glory comes, this messenger will have a ministry of turning people's hearts. But why this expression of fathers to children and children to fathers? So that expression links back to the breakdown of the family that was depicted not only in Malachi, but previously in Micah. So these two prophets and others paint a perverse picture of the family. So marriage has long been a problem in Israel, and bad marriages create all kinds of problems for the children. So the pervasive sexual ethic, I mean, much like the sexual ethic of our own culture, was anti-God. And again, it caused all kinds of trouble in Israel because it destabilized the fundamental building block of society, the family unit. So things like polygamy, easy divorce, adulterous remarriages, sex outside of marriages, prostitution, rivalries between wives. We saw that with Rachel and Leah. Children by many wives, and then consequent rivalries in those children because of favoritism. We saw that, of course, with Joseph. We have sons committing treason against fathers, Absalom. We have sons committing incest. Reuben slept with one of his father's wives. Absalom slept with David's concubines. We have murder of brother on brother. There was the attempt on Joseph, but Absalom actually does kill Amnon. We have treason of brother against brother. Adonijah tries to steal the throne from Solomon. We have deceit between husband and wife and son and father. Think of Isaac and Rebekah and Jacob. We have half-brothers raping half-sisters. This is Amnon and Tamar, a different Tamar. We see homosexuality in Gibeah of Benjamin. And this is just a sampling of how dysfunctional the family unit, even among God's chosen people, could be. So this Elijah-like prophet will preach repentance and restoration at this most basic level of society. When hearts are changed at that level, when marriages are repaired, when relationships between father and children are repaired, then healing and restoration of a larger society can begin to take place. This is a grassroots effort here. But question number three, what happens if people don't listen and their hearts aren't turned? Look at the second half of verse six where it says, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. And this, with this final warning from God, the Old Testament concludes in much the same way it began, with God's curse on the land because of the disobedience of his people, but also with the promise of hope for the faithful that God will send another prophet as a sign that the day of the Lord is near. But not yet. More waiting is in store for Israel. With these words, God goes silent. We're going to do something a little bit different today. We're actually going to sing now. So, 
Imagine you are one of those Judeans who banded together to be faithful to God in Micah's day. You know that God has heard you, and he has promised to remember your faithfulness, but you are still languishing in spiritual exile, waiting for God to return and to restore you. So we're going to sing, O Come, O Come, Emmanuel. And Emmanuel just means God with us. So we're pleading for God to return to Israel. Let's sing it with the hopes and the longing of Israel as they waited through the silence of heaven for God to send their king.